What up, fight fans? Welcome back to a brand new episode of the Tale of the Tape Boxing Podcast. I'm your host, Kenny Keith of TheBoxingRant.com, and back with me for episode 43, my co-host, Vince Cummings. What up, Vin? What's going on, brother? Did you uh, make it through the weekend all right with no big fights to watch? Yeah, actually, I did. It was kind of nice. For the first weekend of the year, I actually had time to just sit down and catch up on some shows. It was kind of nice, wasn't it? I think I'm the only person on the planet that did not, while the show was going on in real time, that didn't actually watch The Wire on HBO. Oh, man, that is an unbelievable show. And it's funny, like, I'm not really lost too much in a time capsule, except for when they start, like, talking about the technology and the cell phones (laughs) and the wires and the burner phones. Like, everything else, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, this show could be happening right now. But uh, as soon as they start talking about like cell phone chips and flip phones and yeah. and stuff like that, I realize I'm like, man, I'm like, I'm about twelve years too late on this show. <laughs> right. But I'm about three episodes into season four, and uh, hopefully I'll wrap it up. Yeah, man, I, that's one of my favorite shows ever, buddy. Yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome. Yeah, so it's been a uh, pretty uneventful and relaxing weekend, and since we don't have any big fights to review and do any post fights for this. Episode 43 of the Tale of the Tape is going to be strictly fight previews for the upcoming March 28th fight cards, both coming by way of Showtime, believe it or not. Wow. I know, it's unbelievable. Showtime has purchased the rights to broadcast the IBF welterweight championship fight between Special K Brook and JoJo Dan. But before we get to that preview, we have... The WBC featherweight championship bout between Johnny Gonzalez and Gary Russell Jr. It's Showtime Championship Boxing this Saturday night at 10 o'clock from the Palms Casino Resort. The green belt in the 126-pound division will be up for grabs and in what some would consider, Vin, to be the most loaded division in professional prize fighting, the linchpin of the division, Johnny Gonzalez defends his strap against the super athletic and up-and-coming Gary Russell Jr. First thoughts on this fight? There couldn't be a bigger contrast in styles between these two fighters. And, you know, the speed of Gary Russell and the the attack and power of Johnny Gonzalez, this fight could play out one of 20 different ways. Yeah, absolutely. And before we get to the actual fight breakdown, let's talk about these fighters in particular. Johnny Gonzalez, the WBC featherweight champion of the world, 57-8 and eight, with 48 knockouts, known for his reach and for his power. He enters this fight at 33 years old. Some would say on the opposite end of a boxer's physical prime. In my opinion, Johnny Gonzalez is the example of a fighter that, regardless of record and 
the number of losses throughout a career has improved year after year and fight after fight. If there is the definition of improving through mistakes, it is Johnny Gonzalez. Yeah, the dude is a, a warrior and a, a throwback style fighter for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Johnny Gonzalez suffered some early losses in his career. We can go all the way back literally 13 years ago, okay, to February of 2002. He fought a Southpaw, Ricardo Vargas. He fought him twice, mm-hmm. right? Two times he came out on the short end of the stick. He also lost fights, his first two fights of his career. There were so many things as it pertained to Johnny Gonzalez, the potential of Johnny Gonzalez, the type of fighter that he was. Nobody was really sure from the beginning if he would ever reach the heights that some had forecasted for him. I take these losses with a grain of salt. As we run through the losses of Johnny Gonzalez, we learn things about him. We do understand that there is a pattern of a difficulty with southpaws, mm-hmm. okay? That's that's first and foremost. The fight that sort of starts the trend of how Johnny Gonzalez got to where he is today starts back on September 16, 2006, against a legendary fighter of the last 20 years and a member of one of the greatest rivalries in the history of boxing, Israel Vasquez, okay? A fight that Gonzalez lost by way of technical knockout, a fight that had four knockdowns in it. Vasquez was put to the canvas in the fourth and the sixth. Johnny Gonzalez hit the canvas in the seventh and the tenth. Gonzalez was dominating this fight. He was. I had the scorecards at the time of the stoppage. I had him at, besides the knockdowns, at almost a pure shutout, Mm -hmm. right? This was a fight where Gonzalez kept the encroaching Vasquez at bay, Boxing and spinning out. He was he was running. He would throw his one-two and roll away in a circle all night long. He kept Vasquez. I mean, it wasn't great distance. He wasn't circling the outside of the ring. But if you recall the fight, Vin, yeah. he had him literally chasing him in the middle of the ring all night. He had him running around in circles for sure. And Gonzalez, I think that was the night that we kind of saw maybe this kid is starting to find his way in the ring. Absolutely. Somebody with his length. We knew that he had punching power early on in his career. That wasn't something that people were putting into question. It was, was he going to be able to make the jab his most effective weapon? In this fight, you began to see how he could dominate a fight just by jabbing. Yep, you're exactly right. As Gonzalez dominates this fight, okay, we get into the later rounds, and Vasquez drops Gonzalez in the 10th with a huge left, okay? It was followed by a few more punches, but the devastating blow came from a left hand from Israel Vasquez. Johnny Gonzalez was up in a few seconds, and he was walked back into the corner by referee Kenny Bayless. When, to everybody's surprise in that fight, trainer Oscar Suarez throws in the towel. When asked after the fight, Johnny Gonzalez's father said he had no idea what Suarez was doing, The way that this fight had unfolded, Vasquez had already hit the canvas twice. This was the second time that Gonzalez hits the canvas twice. Was there a look in Gonzalez's eyes that maybe that was it? Sure. But we know after the towel was thrown in, he was back to his devices relatively quick. Yeah, he was up, and and you could tell he was ready to fight. That that was really a, a bad decision from his corner. The late Oscar Suarez, who passed away back in 2008, developed a reputation as a trainer for taking great 
care of his fighters. It was something that stuck with him. This was the first fight, though, that he was in the corner for Johnny Gonzalez. There's much controversy as to why he stopped the fight, if he even knew Johnny Gonzalez well enough to do so. Right. Was Johnny Gonzalez spent? Was he spinning inside of his head? Was he tired and it was just the time to stop it? Had he been able to make it the distance in this crucial fight in his career? He's a unanimous winner. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Hands down. So we learned something from this fight here is, is that Johnny Gonzalez is legit top five in his weight class. Bantamweight, super bantamweight, featherweight. From 118 to 126 pounds, we knew we had a super talent on our hands in Johnny Gonzalez. Gonzalez has come up through the ranks and proven a time and time again against good fighters that he is 100% game every time he gets in the ring. And the power that he has in his left hand, those those lead left hooks and those those lead left hook body shots, he, he changes levels on you, and the kid just has unbelievable power with that shot. A shot that has served him so beneficially, that left, right? Mm-hmm. At the same time, there's his other hand has been a form of kryptonite to him because his right cross in straight right can be so devastating, right? Mm-hmm. But the issue has always been with Gonzalez as he overcommits to that punch, leaving a very debated, much maligned, and often criticized mid-abdomen section, a weak point of the frame of Johnny Gonzalez. We saw this August 11th of 2007 against Jerry Penalosa, another southpaw. Gonzalez came into this fight weight-drained. This would be the last fight that he fought at 118 pounds. Gonzalez, again, threw six rounds of this fight, flat-out dominated. Yeah, he was up on all cards. All cards. I had it 60-54 to on my card, Vin. At the end of the seventh, Gonzo was circling outboxing Penalosa. This was a master class. Mm-hmm. He was putting on a show much in the same way of the Vasquez fight. Against a good veteran fighter, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. And a fighter that he knew, had he let in close range, that was explosive enough to do damage, which we would learn here shortly would be the end of this fight. Gonzalez throws a 1-2, a left-right. Gonzalez puts everything into that right, and Penalosa ducks the punch. And as Gonzalez follows through, it spins him around far enough to expose the liver and the kidney area. And Penalosa pops Gonzo with a left to the liver, dropping him to a knee, and he could not continue. Yeah, sometimes that, you know, that warrior go-for-broke mentality that he has, it, 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 he's paid the price for that in his career for sure a few times. People look at Gonzalez's record in an era of obsession with losses. Oh, yeah. They look at it and they say, oh, come on, man. This guy's a bum. To do justice to the career of Johnny Gonzalez, you have to go through these losses. Oh, for sure. You really do. If you go to May 23rd, 2009 against Toshiaki Nishioka, another southpaw, this time we found out that it wasn't just the torso, that it wasn't just the abdomen that Johnny Gonzalez found a weakness in. As is so many times with boxers like Gonzalez, if they are not circling and deploying the jab, sometimes they find themselves coming in and out very, very straight. 
when you're as bouncy and as athletic as somebody like a Manny Pacquiao or Sergey Kovalev, somebody that can literally shoot in or a Lomachenko and shoot right back out. Gonzalez isn't that type of fighter. Right. And he found himself doing that early in the Nishioka fight. Well, guess what? He bounced in and on his way back out, Nishioka caught him with a massive shot, off balance, backpedaling, fight over. Yeah, Gonzalez has shown, you know, in the times that he has gone down, and he will go down. I mean, there's there's no doubt about it. He's been down plenty of times in his career. His his ability to recover has been, you know, it's it's been different in every fight. We're not sure if he has that, you know, that granite chin that can handle everything. When he gets hit, sometimes it takes him a while to get to shake it off and 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 reestablish himself in the ring. See, I don't see these moments as being somebody that's not a good fighter that's getting beat that's getting hit in these moments by better fighters. Every crucial moment in these losses has been circumstantial without a perfect storm coming together in aligning. These punches don't even get landed. Yeah. I I think sometimes too, he's, you know, he's doing so well in this fight. He gets overconfident. And and like you said, he overcommits to these punches and leaves himself open for that. Absolutely. It is a double-edged sword. It serves him well and makes him very endearing to fans. Right. Exactly. And at the same time, it leaves him in situations where now it's not so much that the loss cripples the career, but what it does is in the eyes of the fans, it makes them feel like he has to then again, he's knocked down a few rungs and has to start a little bit lower on the hill and start working his way back up again. Right, he's got to prove himself, right? After the Nishioka fight, he does just that. 12 wins in a row, 11 knockouts in a row, which takes him in to his 2012 fight with Daniel Ponce de Leon, another southpaw. Mm -hmm. The lefty-righty matchup finally came to a head, literally, with a clash of heads to remember in the eighth that caused a nasty cut over Johnny Gonzalez's right eye. The fight was stopped because of it, and Ponce de Leon became the WBC featherweight champion. Again, a perfect storm collides. Mm -hmm. Just the worst luck. This time, it was like... Boom, fight over. We saw this recently for those who are just tuning into the sport in the last year or two. We saw this in the last fight, the PBC on NBC with Keith Thurman. That was a situation where where you and I both, we said we gasped for air. We were like, oh, shit. This is going to be a disaster. (laughs) This is going to be a nightmare. But things go in your favor sometimes. And in this case, he didn't have the skin open up on him because had... Had he started bleeding with that kind of a contusion? Oh yeah. Oh, dude, you saw how much was how much blood was puddling up inside of that. Yeah, we're seeing pictures of him three, four days after the fight. Yeah, look nasty still. So he loses the belt. Ponce de Leon versus Abner Mares is the very next fight after the Gonzo win for Ponce de Leon, right? And the first defense of his newly acquired 126 pound WBC belt. Mares stops Ponce de Leon in nine. August 24th, 2013, Johnny Gonzalez gets his opportunity for retribution in one of the most career-defining fights of the last few years in boxing. Mm -hmm. Certainly forever altered the landscape and the future prospects of the 126-pound division. Gonzalez winds up with 40 seconds left in the first round and launches a punch that had every ounce of his 126 pound self it did. behind it and just landed it flush you could see Mares bracing for the punch 
he was caught in a position where he was probably thinking a little bit too much. Oh, yeah. And it started coming, and you could just see him go, oh, no. <laughs> My career. <laughs> There's nothing I can do about this. <laughs> and he goes down hard. Mares beats the count, but Gonzo pounced. The flurry came, and it was a knockout in the first round. One of the most devastating losses to a career that was trending so rapidly upwards. And one of the more popular fighters in boxing at the time of this knockout in August of 2013. Yeah, he hit the brakes on Abner Mars's rise to, to fame. And that left hook that he landed on the first knockdown, the way he is able to just kind of, he's got unbelievable pinpoint accuracy just right on the end of the chin, just that perfect spot mm -hmm. that just throws you down and, Get you spinning. There's, there's no way you can't go down from that shot. That, that's how accurate he is with that hook. Overall, Johnny Gonzalez has been through the ringer. He's experienced disappointment. He's experienced pure circumstantial moments in his sport, laying it all on the line and caught bad breaks. He's put himself in, in, in positions where he's overcommitted himself and got caught. It seems to me, and we saw this, in his 12-fight winning streak, in between the Nishioka and the Ponce de Leon fight, we saw him learn from all of these mistakes, right? Mm -hmm. He's now at this point widely considered, at least ranked by Ring Magazine, as the number one rated 126-pounder in the world. We've had this discussion time and time again. He may not be our number one, your number one, a lot of people's. It's definitely a top Three, 126 pounder. The most respected and the most established 126 pounder, I would say. Because the most talented in the division are so young and unproven. And those guys that we're talking about are Nicholas Walters, Vasil Lomachenko. And you can even throw young guys like Evgeny Gradovich, Lee Selby. There's some other young guys in the mm -hmm. division. Now, for some odd reason, and I'm not really, I don't really want to expand on this too much because trying to figure out why people rank certain people the way they do. Um, I guess it should make sense for the ring, considering that they have a belt. How the hell Abner Mares is ranked third behind Gonzalez and Walters and ahead of Lomachenko and Gradovich is completely, I'm um, just bamboozled and befuddled. How can you justify Abner Mares right now as a number three featherweight in the world? It's he got KTFO'd, right? Flatlined. <laughs> KTFO'd. <laughs> Flatlined by Johnny Gonzalez. Then he fights three sparring partners in a row. And looks like garbage doing it. And he's still ranked third in arguably the most top-heavy division in boxing. Yeah, no, that's just, that's way off. Yeah, Mares has put himself in a position with a little bit of help from one Al Heyman to uh, pretty much soften and expose his reputation. Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. Mares now has become a fighter that just, he seems scared. He certainly does. Now comes in to this picture. Somebody that briefly blipped on the radar screen, competing for a vacant WBO featherweight belt. Fighters that fight for vacancies, sometimes it's, come on, are we trying to legitimize this between two guys that probably don't deserve a shot at this belt? In June of last year, two very, very capable and I would say very well-deserving young prospects had an opportunity to fight for the WBO 126-pound strap in legendary amateur Vasil Lomachenko 
and Gary Russell Jr. from right around the corner in Capitol Heights, Maryland. Okay, the reputation of Gary Russell Jr., Vin. What did you know about him before the Vasily Lomachenko fight? We knew he was a, a decorated amateur, you know, one of the most decorated American amateur fighters in a while, minus not winning a gold medal in the Olympics or meddling at all. But he had just was not tested at all in his way up the ranks. And this fight with Lomachenko was kind of a, an eye-opener to him and what it takes to be a fighter in the professional game. And the difference between the amateur level and the professional level is is huge. I would say in the case of Gary Russell Jr., because in the lower divisions of boxing, the fighters are so much more skilled than are at the heavyweight division. Right. So you take somebody like Deontay Wilder that ran a, a similar course to Gary Russell, somebody that may, you could say he was protected. You could say that the record was padded. I mean, there's a many different things that you can say. Maybe they were hiding something that they thought could cost them and and they wanted to be able to get some more experience before putting themselves to the fire to the test definitely I think in the case of Gary Russell Jr. we learned this in the Lomachenko fight it did not help him at all because Lomachenko was by far the best opponent and probably will be the best opponent that Gary Russell ever faces in his career okay Russell was a two-to-one underdog coming into the fight in Vegas the first opponent that Russell had faced in a in his professional career with comparable speed and quickness, wouldn't yeah. you say? Yeah, definitely. Lomachenko controlled the range of the fight all night long. Russell relied on hand speed only, mm-hmm. right? Had for his entire career in every fight leading up to just relied on hand speed. Didn't need much else for slower opponents, right? Lomachenko, more than anything in this fight, Vin, you may agree or disagree. To me. Lomachenko exposed Gary Russell's accuracy more than anything in this fight. Yeah, he did, and and was able to get in and out on Gary Russell. Now, obviously, Johnny Gonzalez is not that type of fighter. No. But but he was able to get in and out, pop him one or two times, and, and avoid a shot a lot easier than you expected it to be done. Gary Russell had the likes of Christopher Martin and... Fighters cut from that same cloth, slow, plodding, in front of you fighters where they weren't going to be elusive like Lomachenko, which did not force Gary Russell to have to work on accuracy because they were there to be hit. He was so much faster than any of them, he did not need skill to get around their skill because he could hit them before they could do anything else, right? December 12th, 2014, the Christopher Martin fight the fight after the Lomachenko fight, part of a forgettable Al Heyman A-side showcase card. Yes, it was. And the icing on the cake to a miserable year of protecting fighters and ripping off customers to perpetuate the forthcoming plans to launch the PBC. Martin, a very slow and plotting fighter, Russell showed zero improvement with his accuracy because he didn't need to. Again, you and I talked about this before that fight. We wanted to see him actually adapt and implement what he may have learned from this Lomachenko fight. Maybe jab his way in, work off the jab. Don't just jump inside and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Something. This type of opponent and this kind of a matchup outside of the Lomachenko fight has enabled, and like I said previously, Ben, it has stunted the growth of Gary Russell Jr. as a technical fighter. Yes. Right? Russell has no need for boxing technique if he keeps fighting guys like this. None whatsoever instead of working on his accuracy and his technique 
He fought as if there was no opponent in front of him at all, throwing flashy, quick combinations without a care in the world where they landed, making sound effects like you just so duly impersonated with every punch, focusing on swagger and showing off his speed. I was so disappointed, man. I was so disappointed that we did not see any improvement against a propped-up opponent put there to lose in a series of lopsided mismatches. It was a disappointing performance, and, you know, we, we tried to give him a chance in that fight because that fight against Lomachenko, you know, maybe we beat up on him a little too much. Lomachenko was just that damn good, and, and Gary Russell, I mean, he may be one of the top three fighters in the division, but Lomachenko is just light years beyond him. But, yeah... There was no improvement. It's just the flashy, impress-the-judges style that it's not going to win you fights against the top of the division, man. No, it's not. And what we're seeing now is is instead of there being the right people around him, I'm not, I'm not necessarily talking about the trainers in his corner. I'm talking about the people responsible for developing Gary Russell, the people that promoters build fighters by putting them in fights and in situations that forces their hand to develop and learn. Had Gary Russell been forced, say, maybe around like fight 17, 18, 19 of his career, the time in which a young mid-20s fighter that is supposed to be an uber prospect is supposed to start getting challenged by the gatekeepers of the division to get them ready for the top-notch kind of opponents. I can guarantee you right now, even with Russell's pedigree, the way that he behaved in the ring against Lomachenko told me that he looked right past Lomachenko. He didn't care about his his amateur record or anything because he looked completely befuddled and confused in that fight. Yeah, he looked like, how is there a guy that, that's able to do this to me? This is impossible. Right. This guy's more athletic than I am. What Al Heyman has done for Gary Russell Jr. now, he's enabled this. Oh, yeah. Right? So they have hand-selected a fighter in Johnny Gonzalez that they feel is a tailor-made matchup for the things. I'm not even going to say the things that Gary Russell does good. They prove problems for a fighter like Johnny Gonzalez. One, he's a southpaw. Mm -hmm. They're banking on a 33-year-old Johnny Gonzalez being too slow for Gary Russell Jr. They're banking on Gary Russell Jr. being able to keep his distance from Johnny Gonzalez, avoid the big punch, throw flashy, high-volume punches, whether they land or not, make a bunch of sound effects, and if they can get to the scorecards, this, just like the Berto Lopez fight, just like the Thurman Guerrero fight, this is set up for the public to believe that this is going to be an even matchup, mm -hmm. and it's a Taylor hand-picked opponent to try to further boost one of the Golden Boys for Al Heyman and the PBC. That's for sure the reason they took this fight. Absolutely. That's what they think. Yeah. And it could go either way. I mean, maybe it's a no loss on them if he doesn't end up winning this belt from Gonzalez. Right. You know what I mean? If he doesn't, this division will be controlled by non-PBC fighters. Oh, for sure. And if Gary Russell loses this fight and we see him again and he still comes back with the same... I his career is basically over at that point. What's your prediction for the fight? I think Johnny Gonzalez will knock him out late in this fight. Eighth, ninth round? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I just think that Gary Russell Jr. is, um, he's not a top five fighter. No. He's a top five talent. Yeah, he definitely has the talent. He has the talent to be the best fighter in the division. Sure. Sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm going to predict a fifth round knockout by Johnny Gonzalez. Nice. Yeah, I think it's going to take 
him that many rounds, sort of like Andy Lee versus Korboff, just to get that timing just right to, as you would say, give him a little ting. A little ting on the chin? Yeah, a little ting. Ting. <laughs> so there you have it, our predictions for Johnny Gonzalez versus Gary Russell Jr., I'm really looking forward to this fight. Yeah, I think this is going to be a very entertaining fight. We don't know which way it's going to go until the bell rings. No, we don't. On the undercard, Jermel Charlo and Vanis Martirosian. What's your first thoughts on this? Besides the fact, I think these guys are friends. Yeah, it's they, they work out of the same camp. Yeah, and I think they have like this thing where they have like cooking contests on Twitter where they make dinner and then tweet each other. Like, who do you think made the best amalgamation of nonsense? <laughs> Maybe it's the other Charlo. You know, we get him confused. Right. I do know that this is the Charlo that puts on snooze fests. Oh, my God. Yes, he is a boxer. If you don't like, uh, you know, rangy, one-two, like your your classic one-two boxer. Mm-hmm. There's nothing really exciting about anything, you know, off the top of your head with Charlo. You, you just think solid boxer. Vanis is ranked number five by the ring. Charlo is ranked number six. Charlo, like you said, the skilled boxer, right? I've always considered him really difficult to watch. Yeah. I mean, boring beyond air is Londi Lara. Vanis is far more aggressive. Yes. Vanis with better experience overall. Also against high-end boxer types like Willie Nelson, Demetrius Andrade, and Arislandi Lara. He has fought against the same molded fighter that Jermel Charlo is cut from. Yeah, I don't know why his team keeps getting him these fights against these type of fighters if he's struggling with them. The Nelson fight was a good fight. Yeah. That was kind of a physical mismatch, though, too. Yeah, You know what I mean? Definitely. Because Wilson was really, really awkward. But that's how this fight, I think, is going to look. I think it's going to have that same awkward sort of tension that it it could get exciting if Jermel puts his his foot on the gas a little. He's going to have to. But I think that it's going to be fight or flight for him. I think he's going to fight conservatively. I think he's going to fight on the outside, and he's going to try to use his length to his advantage. Yeah. Now, we've seen Vanis, so he can get – I mean, he will be aggressive. You Absolutely. know he, he's coming at you. Uh, Charlo has yet to deal with a fighter that comes at you like, like Vanis does. So we could come to find out that Charlo can't handle pressure fighters, and, and he made it to the big time, and it's just too much for him, but – I don't know, man. It seems like a terrible matchup for, for Martirosian, in my opinion. There has been complaints coming out of the Charlo camps that nobody wants to fight them. Oh, God. Right? It seems like everybody in the 154-pound division, none of them want to fight each other, but they all want to talk about how heavily avoided they are. Uh, everybody boo- in the division. Boo-boo Andre, he's, uh, is he getting, is, is he delusional? I, I really don't understand what this guy, what comes out of his mouth, man. Well, I think he's just been hanging out with Andre Ward. Yeah. You know, he he, he sure shit is acting just like him. Charlo hasn't fought anybody. He hasn't fought anybody with the experience and the rugged nature of Vanis Martirosian. Let's be honest. The toughest fight that Jermel Charlo has been in, probably the best opponent he has faced is Gabriel Rosado. Yep. Okay? And that was going to be a fight that favored him anyways because naturally, even though Rosado is as tough as hell, even though Rosado will fight against the bangers like Lemieux and the bangers like Triple G, right? When he gets in the ring against the boxer, Rosado's a boxer. Yeah, and he just was a, a step behind Charlo. That's exactly. it. Exactly. So I think the difference in this fight is, is that Vanis is way, way more seasoned. Yeah, definitely. And Charlo does not have the power to get him out of there. On my side of things, I feel like Charlo's going to have too much speed. He's going to box him just the way Andre did in a very boring blah fight and he'll win 
a close unanimous decision. Based off of the track record of Vanis, based off of the type of fighter that he struggled with, that is probably more likely to happen. I'm going to go with that, that common equation of fighters just having not been tested. On top of the fact, too, you know, one thing that I've always noticed about, about Jermel Charlo is that he's never, he's never really been touched on the chin. No. You know what I mean? He's never been hit with, like, a devastating shot to where, how's he going to react? They come off as being pretty tough kids. His brother comes off being far more just alpha male. You know what I mean? Yeah, he's way more of a banger. I would have loved to have seen his brother fight Martirosian. Yeah, that would have been the better fight for sure. Oh, absolutely. And there's no doubt about that whatsoever. All right, so pretty simple and to the point with the co-feature of the Gonzalez versus Gary Russell card. Okay, it should overall be a pretty exciting night. Yeah, I, th- I think it's going to be a couple of very interesting fights where they could go many different ways. Absolutely, there's no doubt, no doubt. A few hours before then, as we just found out recently, Showtime has picked up Kell Brook's defense of his IBF welterweight strap against mandatory challenger Jojo Dan. Most recently, we saw Jojo Dan square off against Kevin Bizier in a rematch of their first fight. Dan, to me, okay, he strikes me as a guy, he's kind of a jack-of-all-trades kind of guy, Mm -hmm. who is more of just a pure fighter than he is any specific thing. When you watch him fight, you definitely can see he's not really interested in in a stylistic boxing fight. He kind of just wants to get in there and, and, and let's put the hands up and let's throw some punches and let's see who's tougher. He's going to need that. Yeah. Because as we saw... Back on August 16th of 2014, Kell Brook squared off against a very, very rugged, physical, aggressive fighter in Sean Porter. A welterweight that many, and you and I had talked on previous episodes, highly regarded. Oh, yeah. Considered probably one of the two or three best welterweights under 30 years old, wouldn't you say? Before that fight, him and Keith Thurman were kind of racing up the ladder as to who was the best young welterweight. Absolutely. And at that point, to be completely honest, we hadn't seen from Thurman yet when we were making those comments and those evaluations. What we had seen was two devastating young guys that did it a little bit differently than one another. Right. We hadn't seen Thurman force the box yet. Nope. Because he was knocking everybody out. We hadn't seen Porter do anything other than just truck through people. Yeah, just mow through guys. Right. We saw him do it to Devin Alexander. Mm-hmm. Right. We saw him do it to Paulie Malinaji in one of my favorite fights of all time. <laughs> I'm sure you don't have that on replay every day, huh? Oh, I do. I have a I have a clip. I wake up every single morning to Paulie Malinaji's uh, <laughs> post fight interview where he's crying his eyes out because he just got his ass kicked. <laughs> so yeah. So what we do do know about Sean Porter coming into that fight is that. We, you and I, I don't know if you did. I think maybe you had picked Brooke to win the fight, but I had picked Porter to win the fight. Yeah. I can't remember. I think I made a late change to Brooke after, you know, right before we did the show. Yeah, I can't remember. We'll have to go back and listen to the tape for sure. But I know I definitely had Porter picked in that fight. And it was basically based off of what we had seen. Mm -hmm. Brooke was sort of, in many people's opinion across the pond in the United Kingdom, some had thought that he was going to be cut from this similar cloth as Deontay Wilder and Gary Russell Jr., that maybe he was being protected a little bit. Yeah, uh, you know, they were wrong because in that fight, he had just an unbelievable ability to get off first and kind of, I I watched a little bit of the fight last night. His ability to get off first allowed him to 
put the brakes on Sean Porter on the way in. Yep. And then he was able to step out if he wanted to or grab and hold because he did do a lot of holding in the fight. But against Sean Porter, you really don't have a choice. The guy's coming at you. Yeah. Either going to stand your ground and grab a hold of him or get out of the way. Yeah, you're exactly right. If he is not able to get off first and pop him to slow that runaway train, he would have ran right through him. Yep. The thing is, Kell Brook is, is, is arguably the biggest, strongest welterweight in the division. Yeah, that's another thing I noticed, and I, I forgot how big Kell Brook is in the ring. He's enormous. Yeah. He's strong. He fights from a concrete foundation. Just your classic orthodox stance, man. If the Thurman Porter fight had been made, now we know why it wasn't made because of this whole PBC thing. They're probably building that up to be a big main event sometime this year. Oh, I, yeah. I expect we see Thurman and Porter, right? Yeah, by end of the year, definitely. I thought to myself, the only way that Thurman is going to be able to beat Porter is if he catches Porter coming in, like you said, and just, just completely decks him, or he's going to have to sidestep him all night long. The most impressive thing to me about Brook was, was how he stood his ground. Yeah, he didn't run anywhere. No, no. he didn't. He stood his ground all night long, and he was able to frustrate Porter to absolutely no end. And I think the combination, Vince, of how wound up Porter was for the fight, because he seemed more than normal. He seemed so fired up and so much adrenaline pumping for that fight that his ability to tie up Porter not only thwarted the forward momentum of Porter, but it also frustrated the hell out of him. It frustrated him. I think it, it, it helped him tiring him out. I mean, you're just sapping energy at that point. We know Porter is, is a type of guy that can – we've heard about the legendary training of him, but still, yeah, he got a boxing lesson from a guy that was bigger, stronger, and just a better overall fighter. We are going to see Vince in this fight against JoJo Dan. We've spoken to the heart of Dan, right? Dan is not a small welterweight. We are going to see the difference in this fight is going to be Kelbrook's physicality. Yeah, I think we're going to get to get a chance to see the power of Kelbrook on display a little bit in this fight. Do you? Yeah. The only question mark for me in this entire fight, really, because I, like you, think that this is going to be a very punctuated, decisive victory by Kelbrook, is the recovery and the mental state of Kelbrook since the incident that happened while he was on vacation, relaxing and unwinding to celebrate his victory against Sean Porter. Days after his victory, he goes to unwind and gets stabbed. For the second time. Yeah, the second time. That's crazy that it was for the second time. Yeah. And this time around gets stabbed in the leg. There was concern as to the severity of this. Oh, I'm sure. The fact that he is back in the ring so soon after that incident happened and is in prime physical shape to take on a legitimate tough mandatory challenger. This isn't, he's not facing a guy outside of the top 10 who, you know, is just some guy that they're just, eh, let's fight this guy because, you know, we've been reading the 99 ways to 99 ways for an idiot to dodge a fight. Yeah. We've been reading old, uh, <laughs> we stole a copy from Adonis up in Canada. <laughs> you know, I, I just don't think that that's the case in this fight. Now, JoJo Dan's the type of fighter that he's the type of mandatory guy that you'll see a lot of camps be like, yeah, you know what? Let's just, we don't need that guy. We don't need him in our life. Yeah, exactly. But I don't think Brooks that kind of guy. He's got the belt. He's been unleashed. People know who he is now. And I think we're going to start to see the reign of Kel Brook in the welterweight division. 
he's going to be heavily avoided. The only way I see Brooke being faced, let's say, in a rematch against Porter, let's say he squares off against Thurman, because I would pay top dollar to sit ringside for Thurman Brooke. Yeah, I, that would be – that. that's the two best fighters, two best young fighters right now in the welterweight division. That would be two immovable objects. Oh, my God. Against yeah. one of just two strong, strong dudes. Yep. Um, yeah, there would be some serious, serious pain unleashed in that fight for sure. I think that Brooke is going – if people are going to step in the ring with him, I think they're going to have a hard time with him. I don't think Amir Khan wants any part of Kell Brook. No, he's just a solid – like, you can't – you couldn't draw up a more classic boxer that's just so – his attack is so calculated. He's He's very smart. He's got power. He's got everything. He's got – Every aspect of the game that you need to be a top-notch fighter, he has it. What is your prediction for the fight? I think it doesn't last more than six rounds. I think Brooke puts him on the floor in six. Do you? Yeah, I do too. I think it's going to happen. I'm going to go again with another fifth-round knockout prediction. <laughs> Maybe that's my go-to this year. It was eight last year, right? Yeah, it was eight last year. This year, it's the fifth. <laughs> Even though nobody's been knocked out in the fifth so far this year, but <laughs> it starts this Saturday night, March 28th on Showtime. Oh, all right. Guess who else returns to the ring this Saturday night? Nonito Donaire. Oh, that's right. He's making his return in the Philippines. That's right. He's taking on Gilberto Parra. Obviously, this is maybe a relaunch, a subtle tiptoe back into regaining confidence. He's, he, I would say that top rank has put Nonito Donaire on the Leo Santa Cruz and Abner Mares program. Yeah, he's they're in a last-ditch effort to kind of reboot this guy's career in, in some way. From what I'm hearing from our friends over in the United Kingdom, from the Irish Boxing Forum, is rumor has it the bridge to the United States for Carl Frampton may come through Nonito Donaire. What do you think about that? I think that's a perfect first fight for him to come over here. and You, you get a chance at a solid fighter. Huge a, audience. Yeah, huge audience, a, a big puncher, and a guy that if you if Frampton is able to do what, what me and you think he can do, he's going to make a name for himself right away. Yeah, that's the perfect fight. It was a fight that I hadn't even considered no. because of the trajectory of Donaire's career. Right. After the Walters thing, I, I didn't think he'd ever fight again. No, you thought, yeah, that we, just, we, we thought we saw the end of his career that Well, night. especially the way he was talking in the post-fight, he was like, yeah, I got bitched. You're better, man. You kicked my ass. Man, I've never been beaten up like that before. You are the hardest hitter in the world. Can I kiss you? Yeah, we have never heard anything like that in a post-fight interview from anybody. No, no, not like that. Yeah, I, I thought for sure it was over. I would love to see Nonito resurrect his career to be that gatekeeper guy. There's plenty of guys within weight, within range down there that he can fight. The fact that he's on the other side of the fence, we're not going to get to see him fight against Mares. We're not going to get to see him fight against Santa Cruz. No. But we could see great matchups against Lomachenko. You know what I mean? Donaire's got to find that fire again, man. That, he does. He, he's missing it. That's the, I think the fire got sucked out in the Rigo fight. Yeah. And I think it wasn't so much. People want to always talk about this, how Rigo dominated him. I didn't see a dominating performance. I saw a guy that had no idea how to fight the other guy. No. he Yeah. He just wanted one big shot and... and just got too focused on that yeah and but he didn't know it wasn't uh, look I think that was part of it but I think that he got so caught up in watching Rigondeaux because Rigondeaux never caught him with any massive shots he was like this dude's running around the ring I can't catch up to him and I think the way that it ended he just was completely demoralized that fight was supposed to be 
a huge fight, yep. a big moment in his career, and it turned out being a disappointing moment where a lot of people wrote about it, it being an embarrassing performance by a guy that might have been hype trained. Yeah, yeah, and I think after that fight, it, whether he was hype trained or not, uh, that that fight completely exposed him as as a man more than as a fighter. Absolutely. What we really saw, though, Vin, I think it was a lot of hype train with him because if you if you just go back and look at his box wreck, okay, mm-hmm. and you go through his bouts, when he went on that run, the Filipino flash run, he wasn't fighting anybody. No. You know what I mean? It wasn't until he got in the ring with the likes of, you know, Jorge Arce, Rigondal, Victor Chinian, Simpiwe Vitjeka, Nicholas Walters, like that those at the time, that's the top of the division. Yeah. And when he got into those fights, he was two and two in his last four fights. Yeah. We, we've seen top rank do it, man. They they know how to build a fighter up and make it seem like he may be something more than he actually is. Because I can tell you right now, that fight against Vet Yeka, that, that didn't help anybody out. No. Top rank thought that that was going to be the perfect fight against a guy in Vet Yeka that is revered in the division as being just a tough, awkward fighter that's got really, really good skills. This was going to be the fight where we get him in against a legitimate opponent. And then, of course, the cut that stops the fight early in a fight that Vetyeka was just, oh, man, it was right there. That that fight could have been amazing if we could have just seen it go to its natural course. Yep, you're exactly right. That, that was a disappointing uh, fight there. I look for no Nito Denaire to end this. I think he's going to knock Prado out probably somewhere in the – Round seven, eight range. Not going to be a fifth round knockout. I'm, no. I'm reserving that for the televised fights. <laughs> I was surprised to see that he's not even the he's not even the main event on that card. He's not. No, there is a title fight bef- after him. Oh, that's right, Donnie Nietes, the junior flyweight champ. Yeah, I actually kind of want to see that fight. Yeah. yeah, you know, might have to bootleg that one. Nah, I ain't bootlegging shit anymore, man. <laughs> I'm not bootlegging any more fights. I hope this new Showtime International Boxing thing that they're doing. I hope that this is their answer to what has happened in the past. Because let's be honest, now that the PBC has started, the volume and the potential for let's say a good fight every two weeks, like Showtime Championship Boxing putting on a good card every two weeks like they had been doing over the past few years, that's not possible anymore because those fighters are going to be put on other networks now. A smart decision for Showtime Boxing not to die is to have a partnership with everybody in Europe so when there are big fights, Showtime can pick them up like this. Because I can tell you right now, they will get a half a million to a million viewers for all of these big fights. And then the opportunities for guys to come overseas, yep. it creates a lot more fights in the future because guys will have a name. They won't just be, oh, the guy from the UK. He's from the UK. He's no good. Yeah. If you get a There's chance. so to, much of that. Yeah. If you get a chance to actually watch those fighters from over, there is some quality, quality fighters. Yeah. Top notch talent. No yeah. doubt. No doubt. Speaking of the United Kingdom, so we know DeGal and Durrell is going to happen in the United States. What do you think about that? Can't wait for that fight, Yeah, that's going to be an awesome, awesome fight. You and I had not had the opportunity. We'll touch on this real quick before we close the show. I just want to get your take on uh, early point of view on Triple G, Willie Monroe Jr. It's going to be an interesting fight, a different fight than we've seen Triple G in for sure. Southpaw, crafty. Yep. Monroe seems to be a pretty tough kid. Yeah, he does. This this is going to be... Just another test as to see where Triple G's at. We've been, we've seen him against every style of fighter. Yeah, and we he's, have. And he's walked through everybody. I think he'll do it again, but it's just another chance to see 
hey, where is this guy at? Is he as good as we think he is? Chocolatito joins the party at oh, the forum. Oh, man, that is awesome. Yeah, dude, it is awesome. We're going week after week after week after week. The cards continue and continue. Last little bit of news that I wanted to get your opinion on. We have heard this. It's been kind of a slow, grinding, painful Chinese water torture, <laughs> kind of a negotiation, speculation. Uh, Miguel Cotto versus Canine Bundridge on the Puerto Rican Independence Weekend at Madison Square Garden. Uh, color me not interested in that. I mean, I'll watch it if it's on HBO. If they even dare to try to put that fight on pay-per-view, hell no. That fight won't do 100 buy, 100,000 buys. No, come on. Canine Bundridge, uh, he's... He's 41 so, years old. And he's just such a rugged and just rough fighter to watch. I, I don't know, man. Maybe it's a good avenue for Kodo to relinquish the middleweight belt, you know, and get a belt at 154 pounds. Yeah, I, I think uh, we, need to, we need to stop with the facade of him being a true middleweight. He's just not. He's not. Yeah. Well, the WBC has said because Golovkin holds the interim status for them, that Cotto gets his voluntary, like the WBC grants a voluntary for everybody, right? Of course. But how is it a voluntary if you're not even fighting somebody in the division? No, it's, it's you know? a joke. So man. he's going to have to fight Triple G or he's going to have to give up the belt. He, he is not fighting Triple G. I don't think there's, there's any way his camp wants any part of that fight. No, dude. Cotto is tiny. Yeah. I stood, I'm five foot nine and I'm two inches. I've stood next to Cotto and I'm two inches taller than the guy. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And 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 Triple G's two inches taller than I am. He Cotto really belongs at welterweight if he could keep his weight down. That's that's always been a problem for him in his career. Yeah, absolutely. But I think 154 is right there for the taking. He yeah. can beat almost everybody at 154. I think the only fight that would be confusingly awkward for everybody out there would be the Laura fight. But I think he could beat Andre. I think he can beat both the Charlos. You know, the only guy well, and the only fight any of us really want to see anyways is the Cotto Canelo fight, which still still could be made come this fall. And that would be huge if Rock Nation is able to revisit that with Cotto. But is this their new deal? This ridiculous $17 million for fight that they're going to be paying Cotto and it's a three fight deal? Is this going to be one fight of year one fight a year for the next three years? I, I hope not for their sake because Cotto is getting old. Is Cotto going to fight the winner of Mayweather and Pacquiao? That, that's where I see it going. Do you? I, I see it at 154, at Mayweather, Cotto, if he wins. I don't think there's any way he fights Pacquiao because unless Pacquiao wants to fight at some ridiculous like 152-pound catchweight. Yeah, which he'll and, never make. Yeah, he'll come into the fight at 148. No, he, he wouldn't take that fight unless he could get Cotto down to at least 147. I, I think Floyd has has Cotto on retainer right now. Do you? Yeah. Well, that makes sense. How the hell else is Rock Nation going to be able to pay Cotto $17 million per fight unless he fights Canelo and, and Floyd, his next two fights? Right. That's and the only way they're going to be able to make financial sense because outside of Canelo, Triple G, Floyd, and Pacquiao, those are the only fights that he those are the only opponents that he can fight to be able to make that kind of money in pay-per-views and we know he's not fighting Triple G. No. And like you said, highly unlikely that Pacquiao fights Cotto. I feel like what we're going to see and this may be, you know, just a little conspiracy theory on my part, but I feel like Floyd's going to try to pull a let's fight at 157 158 pounds catchweight for these middleweight belts. Let me get a chance to retire 49 and 0. 
and win the middleweight belt on my way out the door. You think so? Yeah. I think that's how he's trying. That's how he's got this set up, the dominoes set up right now. Well, he's about to lose his lineal welterweight and, <laughs> and, and super welterweight belts. You think he thinks that? <laughs> well, apparently he's flatlining people. All this, he's, he's knocking out his sparring partners oh, yeah. left and right. They can't bring in enough sparring partners. No, they cannot find him. I mean, dude, now Floyd's up to He's wearing 24-ounce gloves. <laughs> Those 16-ounce gloves are deadly. Imagine what he's going to do with 8-ounce gloves. Hey, he's on. taking care of Judah. I think they probably should bring in Mosley now, yeah. right? <laughs> but, hey, if you think about it, man, you have to exponentially add up and just magnify and multiply the strength factor now because he's drinking the Ariza shake, right? <laughs> right? And he's got Memo Heredia mixing up all kinds of chemical equations in the background. We'll be blowing up like uh, Marquez here shortly. Oh, man, I can just see it now. So It's going to be like somebody's going to walk back with a camera and pull back a curtain, and you're going to see Floyd sitting there like Lance Armstrong freaking blood doping before the fight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. What do you think about all that blood, blood testing crap? There's just so much. I mean, the backstory of all this crap and the drug testing, and I feel like it's uh, just a lot of bullshit that's being it, thrown It really around. is. The only person I could see this really agitating to it maybe causing some sort of risk to the fight would be Floyd because, you know, Floyd will get annoyed by somebody will like, well, we'll give him a green M&M and mix it in with his four red M&Ms and he'll end up knocking a woman out. How dare you question the legitimacy of Floyd Mayweather Jr.? <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, who knows? The fight must go on, please. It must go on. But we're only six weeks away from May 2nd in the super fight between Manny Pacquiao and Floyd Mayweather. Any new thoughts on the fight? As it gets closer, I start to revert back to my old way of thinking that Floyd Mayweather is going to win this fight. I disagree. <laughs> is that your heart or your mind talking, Ken? No, it's it's both. Yeah. Yeah, it's both at this point. I'm sure I'm sure my analysis is is certainly uh, being clouded by my heart. There's no doubt about that. But from a, I can justify my opinions based off of technically foreshadowing their styles and how they match up. Right. And look, you've heard me for six years say Floyd Mayweather's going to beat him. Yeah. So I feel like I should stick to that at this point. Hey, man. Hey, why don't you turn coat and you front runner? <laughs> 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 All right. So this Saturday from Las Vegas on Showtime, we got Johnny Gonzalez defending his linchpin status and WBC featherweight title against Gary Russell Jr. in what should be a great fight. Jamel Charlo squares off against Vanis Martirosian in the junior middleweight division, and Showtime is picked up from Sheffield, England, the Sky Sports feed that we do not have to bootleg. Thank, thank the Lord. Kell Brook squares off against JoJo Dan to defend his IBF 147-pound crowd. Nonito Donaire returns to action and next week on episode 44, Vin, we get to preview Adonis Stevenson versus Sakio Bika. Oh, man. You're just, no, but here's the best part about this is, and the reason I'm excited is not because of Stevenson Bika. I probably won't even tune in for that fight. Right. I'll probably change the channel. Is that we get to see two of our favorite prospects on that undercard in the return of Julian J. Rock Williams as he squares off against Joey Hernandez and Artur Beterbiev. We get to see two of the brightest young prospects in the game. And I can tell you right now, to all of our listeners in the United Kingdom, if you have not had a chance, or and in Sweden, anybody, yeah. that has not had a chance to see Julian J. Rock Williams fight yet, 
watch him. Make sure you see this fight because he may be. You can make the argument, and I would be willing to do so. Give me a few more fights. Julian J-Rock Williams may be the all-around best technically sound prospect fighter in all of boxing. Yeah, and uh, definitely at 154 pounds right now, for Absolutely. Sure. I foreshadow him controlling that weight class if he does not move up. He said he'll fight Triple G. So maybe we get a couple more fights, and he comes up primed and ready to go after some big fights at 154 pounds and steps up to the plate at 160. Because I can tell you right now, J-Rock Williams is the truth. Oh, he is a just a technical boxing beast in the ring, man. Absolutely. So we get to preview the Stevenson Bika card with Better BF and J-Rock Williams on the undercard from Newcastle, England. We'll preview Anthony Joshua's next fight. Episode 44 of The Tale of the Tape is going to be an action-packed episode that you don't want to miss. The week off this week was nice, but it's going to be really nice to hear the bell sound on Saturday. Yeah, dude, and it's going to be nonstop. Yep. Running all the way until Triple G Monroe on May 16th. It's nonstop. Five, six weeks of boxing, buddy. Nonstop. I can't wait. All right, so we're going to leave you with that, and we will be back next week with episode 44 of The Tale of the Tape. In the meantime, drop by theboxingrant.com for all the archived episodes of The Tale of the Tape Boxing Podcast and The Rant. You can also find both shows on iTunes and TuneIn Radio. For my co-host, Vince Cummings, who you can follow on Twitter, at VinceCummings81, I'm your host, Kenny Keith of theboxingrant.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at Kenny Keith Jr. To all of our listeners out there, thank you for tuning in to episode 43 of the Tale of the Tape here on theboxingrant.com.